Well, welcome. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to worship with you this morning, uh, to gather together as God's people. Uh, you know, today is, though, a little extra special, because today is the one-year anniversary Sunday of Sojourn and Redeeming Grace joining together to become one new church. Yeah. And God, uh, God has been kind to us over this past year in so many different ways. And so before we dive into the preaching of the word this morning, I just want to take a few moments just to pray and give thanks to him for what he has done. Pray for our church as we look forward to what's ahead and also pray for a few other things going on in the world. So would you pray with me? Oh God of all grace, we come before you and we do praise you this morning. God, you are wonderful and majestic, merciful and mighty as we've sung. God, you hold the universe together in the very details of our lives. And today we give you thanks. God, we praise you for bringing together Sojourn Church and Redeeming Grace Church to become this one new church a year ago. Thank you for what you've done to knit us together as one community. Thank you for how you've used us to send missionaries and support church planters and serve our neighbors. Thank you for how you've enabled us to pay off the mortgage of this building, freeing up resources to do the work of ministry and mission. God, we thank you for how you've used us in each other's lives to help us to grow, to shape us and challenge us, to mold us, to be more and more like Jesus. And God, we pray that as we look ahead to the coming days and weeks, months and years, we pray for more grace. God, would you give us grace to be and do all that you've called us to. Help us to be faithful to the vision and mission that you've given to us to go into all the world to make disciples, to do so among our neighbors and the nations. God, I pray that by the leading of your spirit that's at work within all of us, that you would help us to scheme for the kingdom of God together. Seeing more people sent, more churches planted, more people saved. God, as we signed this new membership commitment to become one new church, we pray that you'd help us to befriend faithfulness, to carry it out for our good and your glory. God, would you confirm, conform our will to your will so that we could glorify you now and in the next generation? And God, today we also wanna pray for our college students as they prepare for final papers and projects and exams. Would you give them grace? God, help them to honor you with their academics, to finish the semester well. And I pray that you'd bless them in the summer as they go about various activities. Help them wherever they go and whatever they're gonna be doing to continue to find their identity in Christ. God, we also pray for Congress Heights Community Church this morning. We're grateful for the ministry of this new church. God, I pray that you would bless them in mission and in mercy and in discipleship. Would you provide additional workers for the harvest in that community? Come alongside Pastor Joshua and the members of that church. Build them up and help them to thrive and honor and glorify you in all they do. And God, today we also continue to remember and pray for the people of Ukraine. God, help them as this war rages on. Give them hope. God, we pray that you would turn back the wicked thwart their plans and bring an end to this war. And God, we pray for the church to continue to be a light in the midst of the darkness. And finally, God, we pray for our time in your word now. God, help us to see ourselves rightly as people who are in need of your grace. 
God, help us to rest in and live in that grace. And may your word go out today and not return void. Holy Spirit, teach us and change us now, we pray. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, listen, before we dive into the word, have it read this morning. Sarah's going to take our picture because it's our one-year birthday. Okay? So, so look, you know, happy, smile, look at the camera. She's going to take a few photos. So freeze your face, looking at her way, and then we'll jump in. All right, wave at me. Awesome, thank you. All right, now I'm going to invite Jess to come up and read our scripture text this morning. Genesis 3 1 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for the For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread 
till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Romans 5.19 For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, we've all seen it before. The press conference that's held after some national tragedy or even a bad loss by your favorite sports team. The leader, maybe it's a police chief or the president or the coach of your team, stands in front of a podium And they're there to speak to that crowd of reporters that's asking questions along with the wider audience of of watching people. And they're up there to do one thing, to answer the question, what in the world went wrong? What in the world went wrong? When something bad happens, we clamor for answers. We look for understanding. We want an explanation of how and why this bad thing, whatever it is, happened. We're looking for someone to help us make sense of the mess. But the reality is we don't just want answers and explanations for one acute issue, but for all of life. I mean, is it hard for us to look around and see all that's going on in our world, even in our own personal lives, and realize that things are off? Wars and conflicts, sickness and suffering, difficult and broken relationships, division and disunity and death. The list goes on and on. Our world longs to know why we are where we are. I mean, is this really the way that things are supposed to be? We long to know what in the world went wrong. And our culture searches and seeks to give a whole lot of answers for that. Oh, the reason that thing happened or this thing's going on is because of personality or upbringing or circumstances that are outside of our control. But thankfully, we don't have to go searching for answers to know what in the world went wrong because God tells us very clearly. We're in a sermon series called Origins, Living Life in God's World, and our text is Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. In the place we see, God shows us how he made us and intended us for us to live under his good authority. Today we come to Genesis 3. And what we see in this text is the core, the crux, the the starting point for all that is wrong and bad in our world and in our own lives. In this text, we find the root to all problems, both personal and global. And the answer is what the Bible calls sin. It's outright rebellion against God. Rebellion that, as we'll see, began in the heart of one man, one person, and has now infected all people and all of creation. But it's not all bad news. Because also within this text, we see that all is not lost. There's a promise and a glimmer of hope that's given. That though through one man came sin and death, also through another man will come redemption and restoration. 
Listen, the reality is you and I can't understand what in the world is wrong if we don't understand Genesis chapter three. This is the jumping off point for all of that. And so my hope for you today, whether you're super familiar with this story and this text or you've never heard it before, that God will use it to help you. That when you see or experience the effects of sin in our world, you won't be surprised, but you also won't despair because you know that a better Adam has come and will come again to make all things new. So let's jump into Genesis 3. And may God bless the preaching of his word. Genesis 3 is written in narrative form. It's a story. It's a true story. So what I want to do is I want to walk through this story to try and help us understand what's going on and then take a little bit more of a, a detailed look at the pathology, the consequences, and the remedy for sin. So let's start by walking through the story. In Genesis chapter 1, we see a high-level look at God's creation that he called everything into existence by the power of his word. Everything out of nothing. He made the world and it was good. And when we get to chapter 2 in Genesis, we zoom in to look at the pinnacle of God's creation, the making of the first humans, a man and a woman made in the image of God. And chapter two ends with a summarizing statement of the tranquil state of God's creation. Look at Genesis 2.25. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, that's all about to change. The beginning of chapter three says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. All of a sudden, it seems that this serpent appears, this crafty serpent shows up in this place of peace. Now, the author doesn't tell us where the serpent comes from or in this moment who the serpent is, only that he's a part of creation, God's creation. It's important for us to remember. And what we'll see is that this snake, this serpent is more than a mere snake. He comes into the garden, this place of peace, but he comes to create chaos. He speaks to the woman who we found out later in this chapter's name will become Eve. Look what it says, the rest of verse one. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Initially, this seems like an innocent question. Kind of innocuous, you're just looking for more information. Like, can you tell me? I mean, I wasn't there. What did, what did God actually say to you? But we see the seeds of deception already being planted. He's laying the groundwork for doubt, to disregard God. He doesn't say something totally different, just slightly different. It's truth mixed with error. Now the woman refutes his misleading and misinformed question, but she also adds a little bit of something extra to it. Look at verses two and three. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now from what we know, God didn't say don't touch it, he just said don't eat it. So she's paraphrasing, throwing a little bit of something extra in there. Now the serpent's true intentions come out. Look at verses four and five. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Two things are going on here. In this moment, what the serpent is doing is he's attacking God's authority and he's maligning God's character. The serpent is tempting the woman to throw off God's authority and to declare herself independent and self-sovereign. 
He's drawing her heart to doubt God's goodness and his blessings and introducing the idea that in order for her to thrive, if she really wants to be the best version of herself she needs to be and can be, she doesn't need God, she needs to be God. This is all a lie. They don't need the knowledge of good and evil to be like God. They're already like him, made in his image, meant to reflect and represent God in the world, giving glory and honor and praise to him. They're set apart from all of the rest of creation. They're not like anything else that God has made. They're unique in that way, the pinnacle of his creation, meant to rule over creation under God's good authority. But the hook is set. She considers the dubious offer and she's taken in. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And we may look at this and think, why did she do that? But I think if we actually think about our own lives, we can relate. I mean, I know I can. What's going on here is self is at the center. I know that when I want what I want, when I want it now, I can do the same thing. I can be taken in by this lie that that's what I need and I'll do whatever I have to do to get it. That's why I can end up being harsh or angry or impatient with my kids. They're not doing something I want them to do in the way I want them to do it and I want my way now. So I throw off God's design and God's call for me. Now, a question that might come up in the midst of this is where's Adam in all of this? Well, we can read the rest of verse six. She ate of the fruit and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Adam seems to be right there, silent, passive. There's a serpent talking to his wife and he does nothing. She offers him the fruit and having heard the lies of the serpent, he takes and eats it too. So what happens? Well, the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed but now they have their eyes opened at some level, but not to this elevated place of knowledge and independence, only to the reality that they're naked. Once in a place of security, they now feel exposed. They feel vulnerable and in comes a crushing tidal wave of shame and guilt. But instead of running to God for help, realizing they've made a mistake, they've messed up in that moment, instead of trying to do that, they try to fix things themselves. They realize they're naked and we see in verse seven, they sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness up. They try to fix the problem on their own. Instead of asking for forgiveness, when they hear God coming in fear, they run and they hide. Now the issue of shame and hiding are really important. And there's things that we wrestle with in our own life today. And so because of that, we're gonna spend a whole nother sermon in a couple of weeks talking about shame and hiding. So we'll come back to it. But God calls for them. He comes to them. We see in verse nine and he asks this question, where are you? This isn't because God doesn't know where they are. God has all knowledge. He knows everything at all times. He isn't asking that because he's not sure of their whereabouts. He knows what's happened. What he's doing is, is calling them to account. Adam now finally speaks. And he said to God, verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What used to be a source of comfort, think about this, the very presence of Almighty God, a source of comfort for Adam and Eve has become a terror invoking fear. Why? Because Adam knows he's rebelled. 
something God confronts and confirms in verse 11. God says to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And now comes the thing that all of us can definitely relate to. Instead of taking overship over his wrongdoing, Adam blame shifts. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Do you notice what he does here? He blame shifts in two directions. He says, it was the woman that you gave me. This, this isn't my fault. I'm an innocent bystander here. I'm basically a victim, God. Right? This isn't on me. It's her and it's you. Well, she's not going to take the rap though. Verse 13, she says, it's not my fault either. It was this serpent. He tricked me. Which at some level is true and also not true. He did deceive her, but she knew who God is and his character and his nature. She knew the command that God had given to her. And as Adam did, who stood, just stood by and, and did nothing in the midst of that. Again, we know exactly what this is like. We can blame shift all the time. Come up with reasons of why we do the things we do or don't do the things that we should do. Even at times, blaming God. Pointing our finger at him, questioning him. Not asking him questions. It's fine to ask God questions. But questioning him. His authority, his goodness. Have you ever had the thought in your head, God, if you really loved me, you would do this for me? God, if you really cared about me, then you would stop this? It's that idea of you're, you're questioning God's authority. You're seeking to throw it off. The reality is they were taken in by this lie. And it wasn't merely an act of disregarding a suggestion that God had or, or preferences or guidelines that God gives. It's not even like if you've ever had this experience where you've gotten pulled over for speeding. An officer comes up to your window and says, do you know what happened? And you think, I, maybe your honest answer is, I don't know, I didn't see the speed limit sign. I don't know how fast I was going. This isn't what's going on here. You can't plead ignorance. You don't know what's happened here. This is willful disobedience. This is open rebellion against God. It's treason. This is sin. As one scholar says, those who were meant to govern the earth on God's behalf instead rebel against their divine king and obey one of his creatures. And because of that, there are very real consequences for this sin, for this rebellion. But before we get to that in the next few verses, I want to talk about the pathology of sin. Pathology is the study of the cause and effects of disease. And that's exactly what sin is. An insidious, pervasive disease that affects the heart, the mind, and the soul. All of it. See, God created the world and he called it good, but sin isn't good. It's evil. So where did it come from? We don't know the point or the time. But we do know that evil entered the created world after God's work of creation was completed. We don't know exactly why, but we do know that God allows freedom. He allows a freedom that even though he's king, he wants us to be responsible and responsive in meaningful ways. In other words, we're not robots. 
We are made Adam and Eve at this point are created in a way to be able to obey and able to not obey. We also find out from other places in scripture that the chief perpetrator of evil is the great enemy of God, Satan, who himself rebelled against God, who himself threw off God's authority, who himself doubted God's character. See, the serpent is Satan in disguise. He is the rebel and the corrupter who seeks now to corrupt more to rebel. As we see in this text, he does that through a reinterpretation, which is a misinterpretation of life under God's good rule and ways. So what is the pathology of sin? The pathology of sin is that it's fundamentally anti-God. It's rooted in unbelief and pride that leads to disobedience. And it manifests itself by way of doubt and discontentedness. Let's unpack that a little bit. See, the serpent introduces this seed of sin by injecting doubt into the heart and mind of the woman and the man. To doubt that God is who he says he is. To doubt his character, to doubt his nature, to doubt that he's given them all things for their joy and their good, including his command to obey. But it isn't just about doubt, but also discontentedness. You notice the serpent says what he's trying to get at here. He's saying you're missing out on something. There's something you need that you don't have. And in the heart of the woman, the heart of the man, they forget all of the many blessings, all of the other trees in the garden that God has given to them, all of God's provision for them. And in this moment, have a singular focus on the one thing he told them they cannot have and they cannot do. This doubt and discontentedness shows what is at the root, and that's unbelief. God must not really be good. God really isn't for me. God is holding out on me. He's even, maybe, maybe he's even working against me. And what happens when unbelief is actively at work in their hearts and ours, in our, their hearts and their minds and ours, they disobey. They mistrust God and instead put their trust in themselves. They throw off God's authority and seek to establish themselves as the authority. So not only is sin rooted in unbelief, but also pride. See, they're not merely breaking a few rules. They're committing treason as they seek to establish their own kingdom in opposition to God and his kingdom. Effectively saying, I don't need you. I'm good on my own. They ignore God in God's world. J.I. Packer, the scholar and theologian, said this, sin is a spirit of fighting God in order to play God. You're fighting against him, asserting yourself, throwing off his authority because you want to be him, be in control. And that's exactly what we see happening in this text. What in the world went wrong? Our first parents rejected God's authority and rejected God's character and we do the exact same thing for the exact same reasons. Unbelief, pride, arrogance, thinking we're good on our own. We don't need him. We got this. Where might you be seeking to be the God of your own life right now? And where might you be rejecting God and his good ways for you right now? So what happens in this story? Well, we see the consequences of sin and rebellion in verses 14 through 24. 
In verses 14 and 15, we see what happens to the serpent. We'll come back to that in a bit. But in verses 16 through 24, we see three consequences or three effects of their rebellion. There's a physical consequence, a relational consequence, and a spiritual consequence. So first, the physical. God commanded Adam and Eve, made in his image, to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, to be a part of creating more people made in God's image. This is really important. We're actually going to spend some more time talking about this next week. But now we see in verse 16, now it's going to be a very painful process. Verse 16, the beginning of it. I will surely, speaking to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. It's going to be hard. And God commanded Adam and Eve to have dominion over creation and to work to cultivate creation. Work is a part of God's good design. Work was in the world, not as a result of sin. So if you've ever think, my job is a result of sin, it's not true. Work was something God made you to do, but now it's difficult. Now it's hard. Now it's challenging. Look at verses 17 through 19, speaking to Adam. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Work is good. God made us to work, to be creative, to produce. It's supposed to be a part of our lives, but instead of being marked by ease and joy and productivity, work will now be marked by thorns and thistles, sweat and pain. God created the world and said it was good, but now the earth itself is cursed because of Adam's sin. Romans chapter 8 says that the world is in bondage, the creation is in bondage, that it's corrupted. Creation itself is fractured. Now the natural world is fighting against itself instead of giving glory to God. So come disease and disorder, natural disasters, and ultimately physical death. We have to realize something here. Death may be normal in our lives. It's going to happen to all of us, but it's not natural. It's not how God intended for things to be, but sin brought that in. But it's not just the physical consequences, but also the relational consequences. God said it was not good for man to be alone. We are made to be in community, but now relationships will be difficult, strained and broken. Look at the end of verse 16. It says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What God is effectively saying is, Eve, because of your sin, because of your rebellion against me now, instead of having a heart that's inclined toward your husband, being a suitable helper and a co-labor in my creation with him, you will desire to assert yourself over him and he will assert himself over you harshly. In other words, instead of partnership, there's going to be antagonism. This is certainly specific to marriage, but it applies to all relationships. Instead of being at peace with one another, people will be at odds with one another. We see this all over the place. I mean, just open up social media. Look in the comments section on a blog. Actually, don't do that. 
for your own heart and mind and soul, don't read the comments. Politics, just in our own lives, right? We have relational difficulty now with people in our lives. Sin doesn't just affect the physical world. It doesn't just affect your relationships. There also are very real spiritual consequences. We've already seen some of this. Adam and Eve have enjoyed a a full and fruitful fellowship, relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They were made for relationship, not only with one another, but also with God. But when they sinned, they ran and hid. Instead of being friends of God, they asserted themselves as his enemies. So we see in verse 23 and 24, therefore the Lord God sent him, sent them out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, angels, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. God removes them from his presence because of their sin. They could approach God anytime in any way, but now they can't approach him in an unhindered way. Instead, they're separated from him. They've become spiritually dead. But what we have to see is that these consequences are not merely punitive in nature. These are the natural consequences of anarchy. This is what happens when you reject God's authority, when you seek to go your own way. Simply put, it's being given over to their rebellion. You don't want my authority? You don't want to live in my ways with me? Then I'll give you over to what's going to happen. But here's the deal. This rebellion, these consequences didn't just stay with Adam and Eve. They were catastrophic and far-reaching. It affected the whole of creation. And we see that immediately following in the next scene in Genesis chapter 4. Adam and Eve have two sons who get into conflict with one another and one kills the other. In Genesis chapter six, after some time has passed, it says, Genesis six, five, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It affects everybody. See, sin and rebellion is congenital. It's with you from birth. It's hereditary. In other words, when any of us are born into this world, we inherit Adam's sin nature and the consequences that come along with that, including death. Because in this moment, when Adam sinned, he represents all of humanity. Romans chapter five, verse 12, the apostle Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. That means no one is born into this world as as tabula rasa, a clean slate. We aren't born free, we're born captive. We're born into this world as rebels. We sin because we're sinners. It's part of our nature. We suppress the truth and the goodness of God. We question and reject his authority and character. We choose to worship our self. We choose to worship creation instead of our creator. We assert ourselves as the sovereigns of our lives. We reject God and his authority, seeking to go our own way, just like our first parents. In Romans chapter 3, Paul unpacks this a bit. A few verses from Romans chapter 3. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Why? Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. 
God, I don't need you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, every person, is born into this world totally depraved. Now, that doesn't mean that you are the worst you possibly could be. What it means is, is that every inch and aspect of who you are, from your head to your toes, inside and out, is affected and infected by your sin. We, we have no desire, we have no ability to walk in obedience or worship of God. So now we, like Adam and Eve, struggle with the reality of and the consequences, not just of their sin, but of our own. We too experience the physical, relational, and spiritual effects, and that's not hard for us to see. Sin attaches itself to the good things of God in this world. Sin is like a leech, it's like a parasite. It attaches to the good things and it sucks the life out of it, seeking to destroy it. Desires become disordered and twisted. So good things, God's given to us like food and rest, sex, money, become struggles with gluttony or laziness or lust or sexual immorality of greed, of using our resources in ways that aren't honoring to God. Relationships become difficult and damaged. So we have arguments and anger, conflict and disunity. We experience selfishness and slander, lying and gossiping, divorce and abandonment, abuse and oppression. If you're a parent, you have challenges with your kids, relational difficulty and marriage. And I know all of us, regardless if you have kids or are married, have difficulty in community. We get hurt by one another, we hurt one another. Work becomes toil and drudgery. We can still create, we can still produce, but man, it sure is marked by thorns and thistles, isn't it? No matter what your vocation is. And Satan is right in the middle of all of it. Tempting and deceiving, just like he did in the beginning. Whispering lies to you about who you are, about who God is about his care for you, about his love for you, about his character and his nature, calling you away, telling you you can do it on your own. I mean, the beauty of creation itself is unraveled. From COVID to cancer, droughts and floods, death and decay, all of it a result of the outworking of our rebellion. Do you want to know what in the world is wrong? It's the sin of Adam at work in the hearts of humanity. See, when you see these things, when you experience these things, you shouldn't be surprised by them. But you also shouldn't despair because there's hope. Because God also promises and provides the remedy for our sin. Look back at Genesis 3.15 with me. And speaking to the serpent, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall shall bruise his heel. Do you see what's going on here? In a pronouncement of condemnation comes a promise of restoration. This is the first glimmer of the gospel. Good news that all is not and will not be lost. In the midst of the worst possible thing that could happen, the, the breaking of creation, the breaking of this natural relationship of God being the authority and us being under his authority, the worst possible thing that can happen, that God would be totally justified to smite them in that moment, to eliminate them completely in that moment. What does God do? 
He promises his grace to them. What God is saying here is, Satan, you may keep fighting a war against my people made in my image, but you will not win the day. No, one day one will come who will crush you and the sin that you brought into this world. And brothers and sisters, that one has come. Thousands of years after this fateful day, the son of Joseph, who Luke tells us in his genealogy is also called the son of Adam and the son of God, was born into this world. But he didn't come into this world with a heart of rebellion. He came with a heart of obedience. And after Jesus was baptized, he goes out into the wilderness. But you know what? That same forked tongue comes to him and tempts him just like he did our first parents, just like he does us. And he tells Jesus, you can have all the kingdoms of the world. You can be in control. All you have to do is worship me. In other words, reject God. Reject the father. You don't need him. You don't have to walk the path and plan he has for you. You can have your own kingdom in your own way right now. But Jesus doesn't respond like Adam and Eve. He doesn't take and eat. He doesn't succumb to doubt and discontentedness, to unbelief and pride. He doesn't disobey or rebel. No, instead of rejecting God's good word, he proclaims God's good word. Matthew chapter four, verse 10, then Jesus said to him, to Satan, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What does this mean? It means that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted to sin, to rebel, to choose disobedience. But in this moment, he chooses obedience. In him, there is no sin. There's no rebellion. Friends, Jesus is a better Adam. And because of that, he can bring you life. See, our sin doesn't just bring about external and internal difficulty. It deserves death and punishment. But Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. The life that you and I are called to live, that Adam and Eve are called to live. And then he willingly went to a Roman cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be restored to a right relationship with God. Jesus took our place. And in that moment, Satan thought that he'd won. Oh, you said he's gonna crush my head? No way, I struck his heel, he's going down. But three days later, he rose up and he defeated Satan, sin and death. He conquered it for us. And the way to God that was blocked by those angels and that flaming sword at the garden is now open for all of us to have access to God. The veil in the temple that separated us from God was torn in two when Jesus rose again from the grave. So Paul tells us in Romans chapter five, verses 17 through 19, for if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, catch this much more, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Listen, your sin and my sin rightly condemns us before God. It deserves death. But God, being rich in mercy, makes us alive and right with him by sending his son into the world to bear our sin so that we might die to it and live to righteousness. The first Adam rebelled and we have followed in his steps that lead to death, but the better Adam has come 
And now we can follow in his steps that lead to life. So what do we do with that now? The reality is you and I still see and experience brokenness. We still see and experience the effects of sin in our lives and in the world. Jesus has come, but all has not been made well and whole. There's still a battle going on. In the midst of this, society grasps for answers for what is wrong and what to do about it. But they all come up short. Only the truth of this text explains it. Only only the truth of this text, along with the whole of the Bible, gives us a remedy to fix it. And we have to remember it's a remedy that's outside of ourselves. When you see wickedness in the world, you can know why it's there. When you see wickedness in your own heart and life, you can know why it's there. But you also now know the means of redemption and restoration. A better Adam, the last Adam, has come. And one day he will come again and make all things new. So now, instead of trying to fix things on your own, instead of running and hiding from God, let me implore you to run to him. He came and sought Adam and Eve out in the midst of their rebellion. Even in his grace, as he sends them out of the garden, he provides clothing for them. It's an act of grace. And now through Christ, he gives grace and he clothes you with his righteousness, restoring what sin has destroyed. The God who sought out Adam and Eve is seeking and calling you. So come to him. Turn away from your rebellion. Maybe for some of you for the very first time, come and turn to Jesus. The way to fix what's wrong in the world and in our lives isn't trying harder or doing it on your own. You can't. Only Jesus can make you whole. Only Jesus can give you peace. Only Jesus can give you life now and forever. You were born into this world in Adam, but now by grace through faith, you can be born again in Christ. Listen, what Jesus has done, when you put all of your faith and trust in him, because of that, you can now say no to sin. You were captive to it, but now you've been set free from it. So turn away from it. Walk in obedience. You aren't a slave to it anymore and keep turning away from it and keep following Jesus. Hebrews chapter four, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's Jesus. And it says, let us then, because of that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time and need. Listen, we live in a world that is still wondering what went wrong, looking for answers, looking for hope. Brothers and sisters, we have the answer. So let us go to him for grace and mercy and help and call others to do the same. Amen.